Welcome to Tomorrow's People, the podcast that showcases the expertise of the best and brightest investors in venture capital and private asset investing. In each episode, BFA founding partner Gavin Azekowitz will invite a leading investor across the BFA global investors ecosystem and discuss topics across venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, and more. Join us as we bring you the top minds shaping global markets and get you into the game of private asset investing. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by BFA Global Investors. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Good morning, everyone. Good evening to Bob, who is out in Connecticut, and welcome to another edition of Tomorrow's News, which today we're conducting live. We've got a live studio audience. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Gavin Ezekowitz. I'm co-founder of BFA Global Investors, and I'm thrilled to have Bob Elliott of Unlimited Funds back with us today to talk about the role of cash in portfolios. The topic couldn't be more timely given the decline of both bonds and stocks this week. So it's the perfect time to have the conversation. As a reminder to those of you who don't know him, Bob has a long track record in markets prior to founding unlimited funds, which seeks to replicate hedge fund aggregate performance at much, much lower fees. We can talk about that later. He was deputy CIO for Ray Dalio's $160 billion Bridgewater Associates Asset Manager. And Bob has spent many years running various alpha generating strategies. So he's well versed in the macro space. Bob, I saw you a couple of weeks ago in Huntington Beach. You were about to talk uh, in front of a bunch of advisors, a live audience. Hopefully that went well. And I don't think I properly thanked you for lunch. So thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Any Anytime you want to have lunch on the beach there, I'm up for it. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. So Bob, September 11th, you published an article that really got this conversation going, which is don't overweight cash unless you're a market timing genius. Now, I'm assuming that most of the market timing geniuses are too busy spending their billions to be on this call. But for the rest of us, explain to me why you felt it was timely to write that piece. Most of us have experienced over the course of the last 18 months, really, since we've shifted quite significantly to this global tightening cycle, a period of time where financial assets in aggregate have not done very well. And obviously this week, the last couple of days has been quite the acute reminder of that circumstance. I think what it's done is it's drawn people into this basic idea that cash feels safe because you basically have a circumstance where you can't lose money. It doesn't feel like you have a big yield penalty when you're holding cash. And therefore, why take risk where it feels like you don't have to? It's a different world than when cash was yielding zero and it felt like you were really paying a price for it. And so I think one of the things I really wanted to do was take a step back and say, okay, well, in general, cash does not outperform assets. If anything, assets almost always outperform cash. And there's a simple reason why that is, because why would you ever give your money into assets if they underperformed cash over time, right? Because assets are risky and cash isn't. If you just take a step back and say, how unusual is the circumstance? And the reality is, I think there's two key points. One is that 
it's very unusual for cash to outperform assets for really much longer than 12 or 18 months. It happens during acute tightening periods where central banks are behind the curve and they need to tighten rapidly in order to slow down economic activity. And number two, I think the thing that really stuck out to me was that after periods where cash has outperformed substantially, actually, those are good asset buying moments because assets typically outperform cash meaningfully in the subsequent period. And the reason why that is, is because what you typically have is you have central banks who have to tighten. That's why cash outperforms. But that is an unsustainable situation, both economically and from an asset market perspective. And so what you get as a consequence of that is that the relief, the eventual relief from the central bank stopping what they're doing is actually quite good for assets in general. And if you look across cycles back for the last 100 years, the best time to buy assets is when cash has outperformed assets for 18 months, which is basically what we've experienced here. So it doesn't mean for sure tomorrow assets are going to outperform cash, but we're starting to move into a scenario where central banks are slowing down their tightening, where cash has meaningfully outperformed assets, where asset prices, particularly in the bond market, I mean, the bond market, long bonds are down 50, 60% in the US. We're starting to get to that point. We're starting to get some asset price adjustments that start to raise questions, start to make assets more attractive than certainly meaningfully than they were just even a few months ago. The difficulty, of course, with that, when we often face this, is that people want to know, well, when? When do I take this cash that I've been wise to have stacked up? When do I take this cash and start allocating it to assets? And and how do I do that? And I think You've got a really neat chart about the challenge of skill in trying to do that sort of perfectly. What do you get out of the analysis you've done about when do you start if you haven't done much allocating today? If you think about it, just very simply, like assets outperform cash in about two-thirds-ish of months, of any given month. And therefore, over time, assets outperform cash by like 400 basis points, give or take, right? Because of the risk premiums earned. If you think about that, if you held only cash, you would underperform. If you held only assets, you would outperform cash. And if you randomly selected between the two, you would do worse than holding assets because assets perform better on average and outperform more often. That helps actually build an intuition to say, well, how good do you have to be at that market timing? How good do you have to be at figuring out whether cash is going to outperform or assets are going to outperform in order for it to make sense to not be fully invested in assets? Because your benchmark is not, can you do better than cash? Because essentially, over time, you can absolutely do better than cash. Assets do better than cash. The question is, can you do better than assets? And when I say assets, I mean a fully invested, diversified portfolio of assets not just 60-40, but risk parity or some sort of balanced portfolio of strategic beta that has a pretty consistent return stream. When you look at that, basically the way it works out is you have to be 65 to 70% good, meaning that's what your rate has to be in picking whether cash or assets will outperform in any given month in order for it to make sense to try and overweight cash at any one point. And to be clear, like, any month you choose to just overweight your cash, you're making a bet so that everyone understands you're making a bet. Every month you overweight cash, you're making a bet that cash will outperform asset. And so you have to be right 65 to 70% of the time for it to make sense not to just be in a long only asset portfolio. For perspective, the most sophisticated 
world-class investors in the world-class investors that spend billions of dollars developing alpha strategies are right in any one trade in any one month, 55% of the time. In order to believe that you can pick when you should be overweight cash versus underweight cash, you have to believe that your hit rate is something like four times better than the most sophisticated asset managers in the world. And I'll be blunt with you, it's not happening. (laughs) It's just not happening. Because it's only one bet. That's the thing, right? You're only making one bet, which is basically cash versus assets. That's one bet, one driver, one dynamic. You just can't be that good at that bet. So such an important point. I want to come back to something that you snuck in there because I think we often lose sight of this, which is you define assets in a way that I don't think we, the public, define assets, which is It's a properly diversified portfolio of uncorrelated assets. So what do you mean by that? Dumb that down for me. A lot of times when people think about assets, they think about stocks or maybe stocks and bonds. Stocks and bonds are only two of the different options that are out there. There's credit, there's commodities, there's gold. These are all different types of strategic exposures that you can have, and they all have different attributes, I think, is the the best way to think about it. Commodities do well when growth is strong and inflation is rising versus, let's say, in contrast, stocks do well when growth is strong and inflation is falling and bonds do well when growth is bad and inflation is falling. And so if you think about these assets, these puzzle pieces that are available to you right now, when I talk about assets, I think about how do I create a portfolio of those that isn't overweight one particular economic experience. You have some stocks, some bonds, some commodities, some gold, some credit, some tips as well, some inflation index bonds. And you put that together in a way that that means that you're not so tilted towards one growth being good or inflation being high or low or or growth being bad, et cetera. You just say, given all those different conditions, I would expect to get a decent return over time. I think the challenge is when most people think about assets, they think about stocks or maybe they think about stocks and bonds. That's a bad portfolio of assets because it's highly concentrated to essentially one particular economic environment, which is strong growth, low inflation. That's basically what it is, disinflationary growth. And usually when people think about it, they think about stocks and bonds in a cash allocation where stocks drive most of the risk of the portfolio, like a 60-40 where stocks drive 95% of the monthly volatility of the portfolio. What people think about assets is they think about stocks, that's what they think about assets. And actually probably are looking at the market right now and saying assets look terrible. Right now, stocks are not looking so good. They're the only thing that's still basically up in the world over the course of the last 18 months, still close to peaks in the world over the last 18 months. And so they're looking at that and thinking assets are bad, but how is gold going to do? How are bonds going to do? How do you think diversified commodities, oil is going to do in this environment? I think about all of those pieces together when you're thinking about assets. It can get quite complex quite quickly. You did write a a nice piece back in April that was a simple investing game plan. And if we break down a couple of the pieces in there that I think are perhaps less familiar to people constructing portfolios, we we sort of know 60-40 and we can sort of understand gold and particularly those of us here in a commodity-driven economy like Australia, gold oil, it all makes sense to us. But talk about the role of things like diversified alpha or trend following. How does that work 
for investors? How should they think about that? What are the easy ways that people should think about implementing those kinds of approaches to adding diversification to a portfolio? We opened this conversation talking about folks feeling like there's a trade-off between cash and assets. And that's essentially, that's what we call an alphabet, an alpha bet, which means basically they're trying to generate excess returns in, in excess of the market, in excess of index and passive investing. There's a couple different ways that you can generate alpha for a portfolio. One of the way, let's say you just take in, you build a good strategic portfolio, good, nice, balanced strategic portfolio. You probably need a little more commodity protection because that's really the long-term risk is your purchasing power. And so you probably want more commodity protection than just sort of a balanced beta portfolio. Then the question is, how do you do better than that? And I think some people will be drawn to try and figure it out themselves, like that cash versus assets trade-off. But I think there's good, simple ways, if you look back through time, where you can add alpha strategies to your portfolio to help essentially create agility in the portfolio. So you're not stuck in one particular asset or another when one particular asset is not likely to do well relative to other assets. And so there's different ways to do that. One way to do that is to add simple trend following strategies, even just a very simple portfolio of trend following a 12-month change of stocks and bonds and gold and commodities into a portfolio meaningfully adds alpha and helps protect you. Just think about the last 18 months, there's basically been a long-term downtrend in bonds. If you had had that trend-following component, and which would help reduce the bond weight that you'd have, that would help improve your overall return. You'd have less allocation to bonds, more allocation to other assets during that environment. So trend-following is a simple way to help navigate through environments. And it's a systematic way. It takes the decision-making out of your hands. You don't have to sit there and guess every month, should I, should I not, is a way that you can actually follow right. because it takes the intuition away and it helps you use simple decision rules. And then I think the other thing, the thing that we call diversified alpha or balanced alpha is not just taking those simple trend-following strategies, which are valuable, particularly in counter-trend asset market, when assets are not doing well, those trend-following strategies are, are very valuable because they trade in the opposite direction. But basically, how do you hire the best alpha managers to generate excess return? From our perspective, the way to do that is to invest in a diverse portfolio of alpha strategies. All these hedge fund managers are running around spending billions and billions of dollars figuring out how to beat markets, and they're very good at it. The main problem with them is that they charge, all, basically take all the alpha for themselves in fees. But if you can get the fees down and, and invest in the strategies, the strategies are diverse. They're out there figuring out all the nuances of all these different markets, and they can really add incremental return in addition to your sort of strategic portfolio base. And those are the two things when we talk about adding trend following and adding diversified alpha. It's really about adding agility to the portfolio, structural agility to your portfolio to navigate challenging market environments. I'm going to wind back a little bit to, to ask you to clarify a couple of things because there's some really important points in there. The first thing that I find when I speak to investors, even sophisticated investors about hedge funds, they generally have an experience or a view that would say, ah, I invested in Bob's hedge fund. It was I don't know, focused on commodities, or I've invested in Jane's hedge fund. It was the long short equities or whatever. And maybe it did well, 
for a time, and then it probably had some really volatile periods, and then it would do well again. And there was a sort of a, a bit of a walk, a journey that they went on. And they're like, oh man, I get very nervous, right? I think I'm just adding a lot of risk. When you start talking about allocating the hedge funds, I start getting real nervous. I start thinking about allocating a lot of risk. How much of that is actually just true, that it's just hard for any single fund to meaningfully perform in a measured way? And secondly, how much do you give up? When you go to diversified alpha, if anything, what's the weight of evidence? Individual managers are very, very hard to pick. And I'll tell you, there's two main reasons why individual managers are hard to pick. The first reason is that there's incredible dispersion, right? Any individual manager, there's a whole wide range of outcomes that could happen. So, for instance, if you look like, I don't know, last couple of years, What's the average annual return? Your 90% confidence interval of a single manager is negative 20% annualized to positive 30% annualized. It's like a bunch of coin flipping. If that's the range of any individual manager, you say to yourself, that's very hard to model. It's mostly a guess in terms of that broad range. But then, of course, the natural response is, well, I only find top quartile. And the thing that's very interesting about that is Amongst the hedge fund community, if you go and look through time, what you see is actually there's no manager outperformance persistence. Now, that is a critical thing, no individual manager outperformance persistence. If you go back and look through time, the fund's likelihood of being in the top 50% in consecutive years is no different than random. Now, of course, there are some funds that are in the top 50% in consecutive years, But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. It may just mean that they're lucky because somebody has to do it just out of random chance. But if there is no actual persistence beyond random chance, your actual best wide dispersion, no persistence, but in aggregate, the managers have edge, right? That in aggregate, they perform better than index investing. The right solution to that problem is not to go work even harder to find an individual manager. It's to recognize that there is there are known and beneficial aspects from diversification, which can help narrow that cone, narrow the range of plausible outcomes when you diversify across this different range. And that if you take that and you diversify across a bunch of different strategies and a bunch of different managers, you're not particularly sensitive to whether they happen to be in the top or the bottom and the persistence, you're getting the average of the edge. And if you can do that and do it more cheaply, that's the other issue, right? If you can index and do it cheaply, then you actually get a great outcome. If I tell you this about stocks, like indexing stocks is a lot better than investing in legacy mutual fund, actively managed mutual fund managers. Everyone kind of goes, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that's, it totally makes sense. They charge too many fees. They're kind of random in their goodness. Maybe they're good, maybe they're not, but it's too expensive. And so I should just index. You say that about mutual funds and stocks and everyone, oh yeah, definitely agree with that. And then you say that, well, actually, how about we just do the same thing with just the best managers in the world? Right, diversified alpha strategies. People, ah, no, I want to pick. It's the same exact logic applied. It's the same concepts applied. The reason why you like low cost indexing in stocks should be exact. There's a compelling reason why indexation, diversified low cost indexation, makes a ton of sense for alpha strategies. So, where you diversified alpha, 
you add it to a portfolio, I think you say it's an approximately 20% allocation is generally appropriate over time. A little ad for you, HFND, which is an ETF, listed ETF, which is your uh, business, does that efficiently at low cost. And anybody can go and buy that in the board tomorrow. Let's talk a little bit as well about the role of a couple of other strategies that are probably less well-known. And again, people can do this with ETFs, but trend following, you mentioned it, it adds value. How do you add these together if you're starting? No one starts with an all-cash portfolio, but how do you add them over time? Do you think that the best approach is to start tomorrow and dollar cost average? Or do you think that part of the key here is implementation and agility of implementation over time? What's the right approach to getting this thing going? The first thing I'd say for most folks who are constructing portfolios like this is you've got to start to build a portfolio that you can actually implement. I know that sounds easy, but having the discipline to implement the portfolio is very important. For instance, one of the challenges, if you think about trend following, trend following managed futures has a bunch of different names. The nature of that return stream is basically that it is when times are good, it's basically flat for extraordinarily long periods of time. It basically had zero performance for 10 years in the 2010s. And then it's particularly valuable as an anti-beta. When you start to see certain assets underperform, it catches the fact that those assets are going to underperform and assets tend to trend because there's serial correlation and there's good reasons why that exists, both from a fundamental perspective, but also from a sentiment perspective. And it catches that and it's very beneficial, particularly on in the downside type markets, offsetting what would otherwise be losses in your asset portfolio. But the problem is it's like hurricane insurance where you don't get a hurricane for 10 years and everyone like stops paying the bill and then the hurricane comes and you're, and you're dead, right? right? So you have to be able to actually reliably implement the strategy. And so part of the thing that we've been thinking about, Gavin, you and I have been talking about this basic idea, is instead of having these pieces and then the sort of lack of reliability of the pieces, like one of the things you could start to do is you could, if you could start to think about how do you put together these different alpha strategies in a way that maybe takes advantage of the expectations that the hurricanes might be coming, right? <laughs> and weighs a little bit more towards the managed futures when we're environments that would cause it to typically outperform, weigh it less in environments where it typically underperforms, weigh other strategies, particularly things like credit, event-driven, equity long-short. There are other times in the cycle, earlier in the cycle, where those strategies actually generate meaningfully more alpha, not just beta, but alpha, true alpha. And if what you could do is you could actually allocate agilely between those based upon where you are in the market cycle, you could put together a portfolio of alphas that frankly is just like much more, that's more reliable, but also much more plausible to be able to implement because you're not going to be sitting there going like, I know this managed futures strategy is going to suck, right? That's the worst thing in the world, right? When you're sitting there and you say, I know strategically I should have an allocation. I know it's good for my portfolio. I also tactically know that this is a bad decision for me to be holding in the next 6, 12, 18 months because of a variety of fundamental reasons. So take those alphas and instead of being essentially stuck the way you would with an individual manager or with a fund of funds or something like that, put it into a package where 
with replication, you can actually agilely move between the strategies and get something that's giving you the best alpha depending on the point in time. That's the story that you can stick with, which I think is compelling for many investors. One of the things that you mentioned there is a strategy you can implement. And the challenge of that, I think, for many folks, and why I often comment why drawdowns are hard, is that in the moment of the drawdown, everybody knows what they should do. It's the old Mike Tyson quote, right? Everyone's got to plan until they get punched in the face. You should do it. And of course, you can always observe the cafe owner who went all in at the bottom or the guy who sold his house and bought this or that. But the reality is most investors don't. And as likely as not, many investors will pivot the other way. They'll go to cash, often the worst moments. In a sense, you need something which ties Odysseus to the mast, right? It just it implements naturally during those periods. And I think that agility allows people to go live their lives, maybe add alpha in a few select areas, but overall, it does the work for you without you having to overthink it. And it's not betting too heavily, as I understand it, that the hurricane is coming next week. There's only so so good you can know about the hurricane coming next week. And this is the challenge. Frankly, this is the challenge with individual managers, because even if you're a great individual manager, let's say you're fantastic, you're one of the best individual managers that has ever existed, you'll be above the median return about 60% of the time, and you'll be below the median return about 40% of the time. That's a tough environment because 40% of the time you're sitting there going, is this really what I want to be holding? I've been in these conversations with literally the most sophisticated asset managers in the world. When I was at Bridgewater, there are times when it's very valuable and there are times when it underperforms. And you're sitting there going, I can show you 15 times through history why this at the bottom is the time to buy. And they kind of look at you and go, ah, I'm going to redeem. And then it goes up and then they've redeemed. These are people who have access to any strategy they want in the world, have anything that they could possibly want, and they fall victim to the same to these fallacies. It's not an issue of intelligence. It's an issue of how do you put yourself in a position to be able to continue to execute on that strategy in a disciplined way? That's the question. I think part of the way that you do that is by helping create the structure where you can create consistent agility to help navigate through those times where you're not put in that position of like, do I want to redeem this manager or do I not? Because they have a particular drawdown and they don't have a particular drawdown. Frankly, that consistency can only really come not through individual manager selection because there's so much randomness is a key component of how you do that because indexation helps remove the individual manager variance. And indexation also helps you understand why the strategies are likely to do better or worse than any point in time in a way that you could never figure out with any one manager because there's too much volatility. So I think it's extremely difficult for investors. One of the things that people also forget in this conversation is we're talking about long-term returns that are in a well-set-out portfolio somewhere between 95 and 10%, somewhere in there, right? That That's the achievable. Yep. If somebody's looking to achieve much above that, they've got to take significantly more risk in one way or another. And it's something that could be appropriate for them to do for part of their portfolio. What we're talking about is a core component of a long-term portfolio. Not quite set and forget, but we're in that conversation. You say, look, here's what you can do over the next 10 or 20 years with this portfolio. That gives you a fantastic outcome. And if along the way you want to get 
really long distressed credit going into a recession or really long U.S. equities in the, at the bottom, amazing. You'll juice your return, but you're not going to touch the core. I think once we get that core established, it's easier to set other augmented strategies around the outside. Right. Is that a fair way to think about it, Bob? I totally agree with that. The power of a consistent 10% core, which is not certain by any means, but I think by creating diverse portfolios, and that's really what I talk about is how do you create diverse and consistent portfolios. If you can generate 10% returns every single year for 30 years, you've got 16x your money. Is 16x your money over 30 years, is that good enough? Yes. Like that's a great outcome. I don't think anyone who got that sort of outcome, I mean, like a wildly successful venture fund is like, what, 10x over 10 years, right? 15x over 10 years, right? The odds of finding that are infinitesimally small. That sort of consistent 10% return, limiting drawdowns achieved through a diversified portfolio is a totally plausible outcome. And it will achieve something that if you stick to it, it will be a great outcome. And then, of course, you talk to all sorts of people who are extremely talented and have expertise in all sorts of different areas. Of course, there's always going to be opportunities that a particular investor might have a unique edge in understanding or seeing that other people don't. Sure, absolutely. Take advantage of that. Allocate 10% of your savings to that, 20% of your savings. But keep that core so that at the end, you're going to have something that's going to be darn good, something you're going to be very happy with. That's just a great way to close out this conversation. I'm actually going to quote you, back to you. you oh, God. <laughs> I hope it's smart. <laughs> Diversification may not be sexy, but it gets the job done. I think it's going to be exciting for us to continue this conversation the next time about what that implementation strategy is, because we will be coming back probably to this same group that's listening today with an approach to implementing that strategy in a very straightforward, easily understood manner with extremely reasonable fee structure, which helps everybody's returns. And I think that's going to be incredibly exciting. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. It's always fantastic to speak to you. For those who you don't follow Bob on Twitter, please look up Bob Elliott. He has tremendous market insights and they're available to everyone. Thanks so much. Have a great night. We'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.